Hey everyone, and welcome back. In today's episode, our guest is James, a former police officer and paramedic with a unique journey, who recently reached out to us and we're excited to explore his story. James will share with us his most distressing call, which had a profound impact on him, ultimately reshaping his path. He'll candidly discuss the challenges he's faced, the emotional toll it took on him, and impart with us how he found the strength to move forward. He provides profound insights into the lasting effects of traumatic experiences for first responders. This is a story unlike any we've shared before. Let's get started. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us on the 911 Nonsense Podcast. Can you um, go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? My name is James Foster. Um, I'm a paramedic and a former law enforcement officer. Uh, I've been in the business for over 20 years, and uh I currently work in the uh, Northwest, but I'm from the South, as you may detect from my accent. It's um, not noticeable super, at all. <laughs> oh, you're telling me a story. Uh, super excited <laughs> to be here. Um, really, I appreciate approve that. and uh, two thumbs up of the content and the mission of what you're trying to do, and I hope that I can help. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was really excited because you actually reached out to me to share your story. Do you feel comfortable with starting out with that story, the one that you you wanted to talk about when you uh, reached out to me through Facebook? I'm comfortable. You just tell me where you want to start. All right. Well, the first thing that you told me was that you had been involved um, in a murder case. And I'd love to hear, you know, how you, you've actually, uh, talking to you offline, we've actually discussed how you got to play kind of two roles in that. And I'd really like to hear, um, maybe starting on your EMS side, how all of that occurred and what you've done to uh, to bolster through that. Okay. So uh, the particular case we discussed uh, came early on into my EMS career. My EMS and law enforcement careers have overlapped, as is the case with a lot of providers. I've not been satisfied with just punishing myself with one public service job. I've chosen to do both simultaneously yeah that's hard it, it is we're gluttons for punishment um this one happened quite a bit ago but it has definitely stayed with me throughout my career above and beyond plenty of other notable calls uh, but this one in particular you know affected me probably affected my behavior and my growth as a person so you'd say that it changed you Lots of things changed me over the years, but this one, more so than any other one singular event, changed me substantially, affected you know me in so many ways. Um, I, I, I feel like, as I think a lot of other providers would attest, you know, it's a cumulative effect over the years, but of all the different things that have affected me, over the years, this one, notably above and beyond the others, has definitely been number one. And would you say that it affected you in a positive way or a negative way? Ultimately, you know, it has worked out to be a positive thing initially. 
negatively, a lot of the side effects negative. Part of that has to do with the effects of the situation itself. And uh, part of that has to do with the lack of support that was available years ago from our community, our profession. Yeah, no, for sure positive now, right? Because you've been able to kind of pull through. Do you feel comfortable sharing a little bit of the story with us? I do. So on the day the event occurred, um, I was a shift captain operating a, a shift of paramedics and EMTs. Um, we received a call, a 911 call for assistance at a residence. The initial call was very vague, as is the case in a lot of our calls. Uh, and it was just for a, a child who was sick and needed help. But something about the call initially, uh, whether it was just the urgency of the dispatcher um, relaying to us, you know, the need for assistance made me feel as uh, the captain that it warranted more than just a singular unit response so we rolled multiple vehicles to the call it's kind of crazy how sometimes you just get that feeling you know and i think even the dispatchers don't realize they're they're relaying that information and you pick up on it i do i mean some people will call it spidey sense or a, a gut instinct but it, it's the just tingles. something you do yeah something you yeah. develop over the years and you can't always quantify it you can't always describe it accurately but at it's kind of like, I don't know what good food is, but I know it when I eat it. Yes. Um, I don't I don't know what a bad call is, but I know it when I hear it come over the radio. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of, you know right away. So we, uh, we rolled out to the call. Um, the dispatch information was not such that it would have warranted a response by other agencies. It was strictly an EMS response initially. We arrived to the scene, and initially um, I was underwhelmed with the lack of people, bystanders on scene flagging us down. I thought, given the excitement in the dispatcher's voice, of course, you know, they can't tell me every single thing that they're hearing. They have to uh, give me the cliff notes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I didn't get a whole lot in the cliff notes, but just something in me was sensing that the call seemed urgent. When we arrived on scene, there was no one to welcome us, no one to flag us in, no one to point us in the right direction, which I thought was odd. That is weird. To the point where, if I'm remembering correctly, the resonance was not marked. So we had to kind of guess. Um, based on other marked addresses, that this was the right residence we were going to. Um, we arrived, we got out, exited the, the ambulances. And, you know, typically in a bad pediatric call, you've got at least the occupants of the residence flagging you in. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you've got neighbors and bystanders and other people. You've got more of a crowd than you want. We got none of that. We pulled up to almost tumbleweeds blowing across the prairie. Well, that's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it. It's definitely ominous from uh, the standpoint of somebody that's run a lot of these calls. But it was early on in my career. The hair on the back of my neck was definitely standing up, but I didn't know why. Uh, we got out. We approached the residence. We 
uh, tried to make contact at the door. We got no response to the point where the, the lack of activity on the scene was such that I remember radioing back the dispatch and saying, almost wishing or wanting that this was a fake call. You know, and, and during that time period, we were experiencing a, a certain number of fake calls. And I remember thinking, this is going to be one of those fake calls. Somebody's cranking 911. There's not really an emergency at this address because if there was, it looked like a vacant address. Um, there were no cars in the yard. You know, the, the grass was grown up. It, it looked like it was not lived in. Okay. And uh, I remember asking them, how many calls have you had? And they said, we've had one. It was a hysterical caller. It was a br very brief call, and they disconnected, and it's a cell phone, and we can't contact them back. So we walked up, uh, knocked on the door, and we didn't get a response. And uh, I think at that point, when we didn't get a response at the front door, is when we started making those radio calls and inquiring about the possibility of it not being a legit call. And then they gave us the information that we did. We continued to kind of walk around the outside of the residence and look for any information we could gather there. We didn't see anything to indicate that it was a legit call. And uh, eventually, uh, myself and another crew member walked up onto the porch and continued to knock again and to kind of listen closely to the outside of the residence for any kind of noise. Um, at some point, there was a window just adjacent to the front door. Um, I peered around into the window, and again, the, the call information was that it was a child that uh, needed help. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Specifically, it was a child that was not breathing. And um, I, I leaned over and peered into the window. Uh, it was dark inside the residence, but very close to me in on the interior of the structure, I could see a child laying in the floor, not moving. And so I um, immediately, you know, called my coworker up and I said, look in there. Does this look like what I think I'm seeing. I think I see a child laying, you know, three to four feet away in the floor inside this residence. And they looked and they said, yeah, that's a kid. Um, so we tried the doorknob. Uh, the door was unlocked. I opened it and I spilled inside with uh, myself and another ambulance crew. So at this, at this point, you're like, you're super excited, right? Your adrenaline's pumping. Honestly, at, at this point in my career, uh, my adrenaline was pumping every time the tones went off. Um, okay. I worked in an area. I, I, I was still super excitable. Um, yeah. The newness ha hadn't worn off. And you couple that with the fact that, you know, I'm pretty new to EMS and now I'm in charge of a shift and uh, probably shouldn't be because I'm still trying to figure out how to be a good provider. But in addition to that, I have the responsibility of several other crew members. Yeah, uh, that which can is, be a lot. It, it is. Uh, so I, I think that any time the tones went off and it wasn't a lift assist or some, care, some kind of very benign dispatch information, my heart rate was already going a little bit on the inside. 
Um, but you know, because it came out as a child not breathing, mm-hmm. this one in particular, you know, it, at this point out, I've probably only run four or five pediatric arrests. So I, I didn't feel comfortable with that call. Sure. As most of us don't in any type of a, a pediatric, you know, arrest or pedi- pediatric call in general. I know this was a while back, but for you, and, and I don't know if you can remember or recall your protocols, uh, at that point, did you have PD en route already? No, we did not. Uh, okay. So in the area I was operating in, the amount of protocols were minimal and they only existed at the state level. There were no service-specific protocols as to how to conduct yourself on a scene. Okay. That was purely up to the provider at the point in time that you showed up on something. It was kind of just, you figure it out. So the only protocols that existed were specifically medical, you know, you should give oxygen, you should give an IV, you should do this. There was no protocol for what we were doing. All right. So you guys were, you were walking into the doorway. We, uh, we walk into the doorway and we observe a child, um, a young child, um, older than a toddler, but not quite a teenager lying in the floor of the residence. Um, he is very obviously deceased. Um, it appeared that he had been deceased more than recently there was decomp visible um his injuries were very graphic and uh because the case has not yet been prosecuted i'm aware that the injuries to the victim could be used as hold back information on the part of law enforcement to determine the legitimacy of a confession so i can't go into detail other than to say it was absolutely horrific traumatic, graphic, obviously from the second I laid eyes on the patient that it was a homicide. Um, There's no way that the injuries I observed were self-inflicted and um, that the child was deceased. There were insects visible on the child. Um, You know, the odor inside the residence was uh, horrible. And so we immediately uh, recognized the situation and exited the residence and immediately started putting in calls for a police response. Yeah, it sounds like you did all the right things. Yes. Not much you can do to fix that situation other than get yourself safe. And uh, at that point, that's what we did. So, and I, you might have more information than I do, but how do you speculate that that call came in? Uh, well, I... I I happen to know that. So as it turns out, um, there were multiple victims inside the residence. Obviously, you know, there's a child living there. So there was an adult living there. The adult had not been in contact with their family for several days. Eventually the contact had gone so long that another family member had arrived at the residence just to kind of do their own internal welfare check. Uh, They had entered the residence, found the same scene that I found immediately inside the living room, and, of course, been horrified. And also, the the injuries were so graphic that even to a bystander, it was obvious it was homicide. 
that the family member then immediately fled the residence in fear for their own safety and called 911 and all they could get out was that the child was not breathing. That's an intense call, man. I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I think it's part and parcel to what we do. However, you know, my uh, career in EMS was pretty short-lived at that point, and I just, I had been on some bad calls, but I was not mentally prepared for that, um, which is, you know, it's part of the job. Um, you're going to get your baptism by fire at some point. In an ideal situation, you get prepared for that, for the people that are precepting you or field training you, um, you know, and I, I had good mentorship up until that point, but it wasn't structured. It wasn't organized. Um, so I'm, I'm not throwing rocks at the, the people that train me. I just think the turnover in EMS is so great that, you know, at this level in my career, if I'm already a shift captain, I can't have possibly experienced enough things to adequately prepare my junior staff for a similar type call. And, and so that's exactly what I experienced. I was being precepted and mentored by people that were only one or two years senior to me inside the EMS process. And they just, they did their best, but they didn't have the ability to prepare me for what I saw. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a hard one because when you're going through EMT school and, or paramedic school, you know, they tell you, you're going to see bad stuff. You're going to see bad stuff. Be prepared, you know, but I don't think that anything could prepare us for the things that we've seen. They talk about it sometimes, you know, when you have good good teachers or good preceptors that do open up about those things, you know, but we're often, we're so told to just suck it up that I think maybe we're afraid to share some of those stories with our, you know, our orientees or our students because we don't want to scare them away from the job. And this is our job, but nothing really prepares us for half of the shit that we see, you know? I agree that nothing can totally prepare you, but I think your preparedness can be structured by the right support staff. And, you know, this is just a problem that has nothing to do with PTSD. Um, the turnover in EMS is so great that, you know, a guy or girl that's two, three, four years into their career, 99 times out of 100 should not be shift supervising. They're still figuring out where they're at as a provider. And, uh, but unfortunately, the turnover is so great that oftentimes at the two to three, four year mark, you're by far the most senior person on your staff. Yeah. And, and you're still not prepared for the things that you're going to see yet. It's part of your responsibility to prepare and educate and protect other people that are junior to you. And that and that's just a, uh, a very diffuse problem across the EMS community, in my opinion, which could be wrong. I, I agree. That is definitely one of the biggest problems that we have is, is a lack of preparedness and a lack of training. So do you think that... Uh, after you had that event that your company supported you at all? Um, no, but I, I don't think they 
chose to not support me. I just think the support structure was not in place. How would you have liked to have seen it differently? Um, well, in hindsight, I mean, at the time, I, I thought it was totally normal. In hindsight, um, there probably should have been some mandatory time off. There should have been, you know, some required counseling, um, some kind of dialogue, whether it be at the company level or at a professional level. And, and I don't think that was my agency failing me. I, I think for the time period, at least in the area I was in, that was completely standard. Yeah. I'm glad that you, that you are sharing that because my experience in my EMS in the past was that it, it very much was a suck it up buttercup. You know what I mean? And I yes. think that yeah. even in the last 10 years, it was a choice to ignore it. Like they knew and they could see the symptoms with people. And now we're just getting to a point with such high suicide numbers that they're kind of being forced into taking some action. And you may view that differently, but that's kind of my personal opinion on it. No, I agree. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not uh, here to throw EMS under the bus. I think that was no, standard. You know, all. I think the uh, military profession was not getting that support. Uh, you know, the hospital staff was not getting that support. I think it was just standard and, and it just wasn't recognized, um, which is unfortunate. But I, I don't think it was definitely not a failing of my, my agency. It was just across the board. You could have expected the same kind of response that I got. Um, at the same time, um, you know, as a entry-level supervisor, I treated it different, differently. I recognized that some of my personnel on scene that day were heavily affected, and I sent people home because they didn't appear able to continue in their duties that day. Um, so while I recognize that it wasn't below standard for my agency not to respond at the same time, you know, I'm an average guy. I'm, I'm not a super intelligent guy. I'm not trained in psychology. I was able to recognize as a young provider that people on my staff were not able to continue and send them home. And did you get in trouble for that? No, nobody gave me any grief over that. Good. So you kind of have a unique perspective because you got to go from EMS into an officer position as, as a police officer. What prompted you to switch over? Probably uh, not good things. Like, um, you know, I, I think part of the way PTSD affected me, although we didn't call it that at that time, that term didn't exist to my remembrance one of the things that I developed was uh, risk-seeking behavior, um, putting myself in more and more dangerous positions, um, seeking out adrenaline. You know, I, I didn't see it that way at the time, but it was not therapeutic. Um, but I chose to go into law enforcement, not all for bad reasons. Uh, I think I saw the need for me to be able to help people and impact people's lives in a way I wasn't in the EMS. 
but I also think uh, subconsciously some of it was I wasn't getting the adrenaline surge out of EMS that I used to get, and I needed that for whatever reason. So you were seeking it. I was, although some of my motivations, I think, were for the right reasons. I think internally, some of the reasons that I sought that kind of job were not not intentional, but they were not in my best interest. That makes sense. Yes. So if I asked you to pinpoint an exceptionally challenging call, would you be able to pick one? I think, you know, my entire law enforcement career was challenging. Um, I, I worked in a place that was very rural. Um, so for the majority of time that I was on duty, frequently I was the only officer on duty for a very large response area. And although it was very rural, so not heavily populated, it meant that when you came into contact with people, you were alone. You know, no matter what the call was, um, back in those days, the, the drug use in the area that I worked was heavy, uh, especially with methamphetamine. So a lot of the people that I contacted were meth users. Um, they were dangerous people. Um, and, and that's part of what made me gravitate toward law enforcement is that um, EMS had been a challenging job, but um, I think as all of us EMS providers can relate, um, we don't get to pick and choose how exciting the job is. We are tasked with responding to calls, and sometimes those calls are as simple as nursing home dumps or dialysis transports, and there's nothing we can do to affect that. Um, what I, I found quickly as a law enforcement officer is I was in direct control of just how exciting and stimulating my law enforcement career could be. Um, if I went on a run-of-the-mill call, it might just appear to be a run-of-the-mill call until I started to delve into it and ask more questions. And then, you know, when I wasn't tasked with responding to calls and I was free to patrol, I I was the sole determiner of just how exciting that was. I could pick and choose what area I chose to patrol, how uh, heavily saturated with crime it was, how dangerous it could be. And I could pick and choose if I went to the worst area in my response area. Well, for one thing, I could just choose not to go to that area. I could choose to go to a more safe area that was closer to backup, um, that was more populated, that was closer to other officers, where I could choose to go to the most remote part of my county where the drug problems and the crime stats were the worst, and I could choose to initiate law enforcement activity in those areas via doing traffic stops. Um, and so that that's what made me, I, I never lost my love for EMS, and I continued to do it throughout my law enforcement career. But what pushed me toward law enforcement was this desire to put myself in harm's way. We kind of see that in, it's almost, um, and I'm sure you've heard it, you know, the, the firefighters that start fires on purpose, yes. you know, to yes. go and fight those fires. I feel like that's a, a very similar mentality um 
I'll have to agree with you and disagree with you because of some law enforcement training I have. So, because well, I don't want to lump myself in with those guys for a reason. So people that sure. start fires, um, according to what I learned in law enforcement, um, that is a core tenet of sociopathy. And, mm-hmm. and um, sociopaths tend to have several things in common, um, abuse of animals, fire starting, and, and a few other things. So I, I have actually had some encounters with firefighters that started fires so that they could report them. So I do see the similarities, um, but law enforcement officers that go out there and seek out the worst bad guy that they can find every day, um, maybe some psychiatrist would disagree and, and evaluate me and say, hey, brother, you're a sociopath. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think that I, I am because I have a conscience and that that's one thing that sociopaths don't have. Um, but that, that that's why I want to speak up and disagree with you on that. Sure. Front. Um, <laughs> since I, I have encountered somebody in my personal life that was a firefighter who set fires in order to be the one that reported them and got the recognition and notoriety. Um, my drive was not recognition and notoriety, although, you know, I'm not going to lie. It didn't hurt my feelings when I went out and engaged with a really bad person and, and, uh, was able to affect a good outcome with them. And, you know, some of my colleagues would come back and say, wow, I can't believe you put yourself in that situation. The, the recognition felt good, but my motivation in doing it was, some kind of bizarre risk-seeking behavior like can i put myself in this situation and escape it um i was definitely not suicidal but i wanted to put myself in harm's way every chance i got would you consider that as self-medicating maybe not intentionally it 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 may well it definitely has an aspect of self-serving um and, and i definitely saw that kind of behavior um follow into my ems life you know the way i chose to respond to a call in a vehicle um you know nowadays responses are much more dictated Mm -hmm. and structured and you know back in those days i could choose to do pretty much whatever i saw fit behind the wheel of an ambulance in response to a call although nowadays my behavior would have been sanctioned. Yeah. And with all those tattletale boxes on the ambulances now, you can't get away with it anymore, right? Oh, no, no, no. A guy that was behaving the way I was behaving 20 years ago would have been, you know, disciplined, corrected, and ultimately um, fired. And, uh, you know, I love a profession enough that, that had that been the response, I would have gotten in line with Um, but what I was doing during that time period was not any different than what some of my supervision was doing. Some of the people that I considered mentors or idols in the profession, they were doing the same things and just, uh, you know, being an immature young man, um, I considered them heroes. Sure. Yeah. No, it was a normal 
standard. I mean, especially being out in a rural area, um, I had a similar experience, you know, when I moved um, to where I live currently and I worked out in the rural area, we had the little vambulances. I don't know if you know. <laughs> I'm sure you do. It's a it's just I worked an ambulance in some of those shaped like ones. a van. Yep. Yeah, and uh, they those little things, man. They can they can haul some butt and they can take some corners. And if you don't have any cars out there or anything else to deter you from doing it, you're gonna do it. Yes. Well, I'll give you a a, a quick example. So, uh, as that translates to EMS response, you know, in in some of uh, as is the case with most of us, I didn't just work in one area. I worked 48. So I was working two full-time jobs for a period before I got into law enforcement. And in one area I worked, there was no law enforcement coverage um, from like 10 p.m. to about 6 a.m. Wow. And so that's crazy. Given that we had no oversight and no agency protocols, there were plenty of times where I was dispatched to a call of a gunshot wound victim on scene and told, you know, law enforcement is 45 minutes out. And so I think the first time I went to one, I sat up the road and staged for 30 to 40 minutes while we continued to get updates on the scene uh, of the patient declining. And uh, eventually, you know, my bravado got the best of me. And I said, hey, I don't need to wait on the cops. I'll just go. And so we would roll up on the scenes where people had been shot with law enforcement 30 minutes out and jump out, you know, with nothing other than our little red capes uh, that we all thought we were wearing with the little S on the back. And we would run in there and risk our necks to snatch somebody up. And part of it was because we wanted to help people, but part of it was just thrill-seeking behavior, if I'm being yeah. honest. No, I didn't I'll see it that, that way then, but looking back on it now, uh, I would never do something like that. And I, I still consider myself a pretty capable, tough guy, but I would never put myself in that kind of situation nowadays. But in my early 20s, I was all about throwing caution to the wind. And uh, I think I was not being honest with myself to not recognize that part of that was just that because I was getting a thrill out of doing it. And what do you think prompted that change in your behavior? I, I think part of it was a, uh, a response to the, the stress that I had endured and just not, I mean, literally, you know, I, I think in our offline talk, you and I have been in this about, uh, the same number of years, you know, 20 plus years. Um, back then there was very, EMS was very unregulated and you could get away with murder. I think everything was unregulated. Yeah. I think almost every profession. Well, probably so, but out of the, out of the, uh, EMS try or the public safety triumvirate, you know, EMS fire and police, EMS was by far the newest professional on the scene. You know, paramedics hadn't been around all that long, maybe 20 years in, in some areas by the time I started working. But fire and the uh, police had been on scene for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they'd had the opportunity to develop some command and control structures that EMS didn't have. 
in the EMS profession, you can take all kind of risk that would never be acceptable these days. And we did it on a daily basis. And we thought it was, you know, it was akin to getting on a roller coaster at, uh, you know, an amusement park. It was thrill-seeking behavior. And it was a lot of fun. But it was a miracle that, you know, we were able to get out of it without getting hurt. But we didn't look at it that way. We never got back from a call um, and said, Woo, we shouldn't have done that. That was really dangerous. We got back from a call and high five and said, man, that was some really cool shit. Yes. You know, did you see how close that guy came to stabbing me? Yeah, yeah that was cool. It's not cool. No. <laughs> uh, I can tell one of my one of my old partners from back when I started, um, he told me the story about how he was responding to a GSW to the head, so a gunshot wound to the head. And he was treating this patient on the ground and PD didn't know where the shooter was. So they were running around trying to control the scene. And while he was on the ground, you know, the patient's still breathing. He's trying to, to get her wrapped up to transport her. And the, one of the patient's family members walked up and they said, is she okay? Is she going to make it? Is she okay? And he just, you know, without thinking, because he was kneeling down, he kind of shoot her and he was like, yeah, we're going to get her taken care of, you know, like give us some space. We're going to transport her and we'll see what we can do. And the uh, the family member pulled out a gun right next to his head and, and shot the young lady on the floor, shot her in the head and killed her. And he said he didn't have enough time to do anything else. He just turned and tackled her. And she'd been roaming around on the scene the whole time. The cops didn't know, you know, nobody knew who had shot this young lady on the ground. And there you go. You know, like we don't, I don't think we often realize these kind of situations that we're putting ourselves in. No. And part of that goes back to the uh, point I made earlier about, you know, the turnover. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, you're with a experienced guy or girl, who's supervising you and they've been doing this for 20 years, they can give you all those pearls of wisdom. If your um, most experienced person on the scene has three years of experience, then they're still a baby. Yeah. And uh, so as a new provider, if that's the person mentoring you, it's not that they can't teach you something, but uh, they're not in a good position to really look out for your safety because they're not looking out for their own safety. That's a, a very accurate statement. I would agree with that. So do you have anything like, do you have any stories that you just, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up if you tried? Just wacky out there. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll go back to our initial story. So, uh, and, it, and it's such a, uh, a graphic one and, and a, applicable to the PTSD story. Um, the child that I found in the floor, um, after we discovered his corpse we went outside we called for pd they were not forthcoming um we were kind of in disarray um before we exited the residence as we were standing inside over this child's corpse um, a man entered the residence behind us and he was a family member a direct family member of that child and he had received a call from the same family member who found the body initially. And he 
got a similar hysterical vague call that something was wrong and he responded to the scene and he walked in and as we're standing over this child's corpse had a you know a very graphic reaction and we wound up you know ushering him out of the scene and in the course of doing that he asked where's my other grandchild oh goodness so that was the first time that we had an indication that there were potentially more people at the scene that other than the child we had encountered um so we got him outside and i think the only reason we did is because of the state of shock he was in and we started to try to as he wandered out to the road and began to make cell phone calls he was hysterical we began to wander outside the residence just trying to get some separation from him and trying to wrap our heads around what was going on it was at that point in time that a dog inside the residence started to bark um, very aggressively that we had never heard an animal inside the residence and now we could hear this dog and and because he had mentioned another child inside the residence we were of course we were not equipped to deal with threats but we were interested you know we were concerned and uh as we circled the residence and were at this point we had not done a 360 walk around the residence um we began to do so to look for additional information and at some point on the back side of the residence from the point we had entered we could hear a child inside the residence talking crying and um based on his voice um you know we i don't we obviously weren't having like an intelligent discussion about did you hear that what did you ascertain but it was obvious the child was younger than the child we had encountered who was deceased. So we um, had a brief discussion on the outside about, because we weren't getting a response from the dispatcher about a response from law enforcement. Um, and you're, trying to, out, you're were, trying to treat it as a crime scene, right? You're trying, you don't want to go in and try all over the floor. To. And yeah, okay, that makes sense. We didn't want to. But when we're being told that law enforcement is not immediately responding to the scene and we can hear a child inside the residence calling out and screaming, um, you know, to say it tugged on our heartstrings is uh, an understatement. I mean, I think I feel like that trumps, right? That trumps because it does. You don't know what kind of state that that child is in. So you've got to do what you got to do. We don't. Uh, we had a brief discussion on the outside of the residence. Um, you know, the out of the crew members that we were there, several of us had military experience. Several of us were well-versed with firearms. Although, you know, in the state I was working at at the time, it was a mandate that you were not allowed to carry firearms in the course of your duty as an EMT or paramedic mm-hmm. because of the ruralness of where we worked. Um, you know, we operated, um, on a mantra of something that I have heard quite a few times in law enforcement and a lot of people in the military have heard, um, that I would rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. Sure. So you will break rules as the case may be in order to get the job done. 
myself and a couple of the other crew members, we carried firearms on the ambulance with us, even though that was an absolute no-no. And we did never, up until that day, we had never used those firearms. We had never pulled them out of their hiding spots. But we very quickly decided that we were going to make entry into that residence um, as untrained, you know, other than our military training. But we were not law enforcement officers. This is not a skill that you learn at that stage in the military. You know, um, my my firearms training in the military didn't teach me to go in and clear a resident. So we very quickly retreated back to the ambulance. We retrieved um, firearms that we were hiding inside the ambulance for our own safety. <laughs> Goodness. Um, and we very quickly formulated a plan to retrieve this child out of the residence. Uh, we entered the residence. We were able to determine that his voice was coming from a certain part of the residence. He was behind a locked door and he was screaming and we couldn't make out a lot of what he was saying because there was a dog pinned up inside the room that he was in hmm. who was barking ferociously and so we could hear very little of what he was saying other that he was in distress and uh we tried the doorknob it was locked um we came up with a quick plan you know that we were going to kick the door in um i i wouldn't say holstered but i placed my pistol inside my waistband and it was agreed that I was going to be, that we could tell the child was immediately on the other side of the door uh, of a, what we thought was a bedroom uh, from a room in the house. The dog was obviously at the door and, and going nuts. And a couple of the other guys provided cover. Somebody kicked the door. I, I can't remember who, but when we told the child to back up away from the door, the door was kicked and um, the power inside the residence was disconnected, so there was no light. Now, it was daylight. You know, it was like middle of the afternoon, so there was some sunlight. There was no um, external light. And as soon as the door was kicked, I stepped inside the bedroom, and I grabbed him by the hair of his head and jerked him into my chest and grabbed him. Um, he was a small child, like a toddler. And when I did that, I could immediately see the corpse of an adult on the bed, very obviously deceased, very obviously graphically injured. There was, you know, blood sprayed all over the ceiling, the walls. It was, uh, I've seen a lot of things in a 20 plus year career of law enforcement, EMS, military. I've watched horror movies. I've never seen anything like what I saw inside that room. And it was a very quick view as I grabbed the child and I grabbed him by the hair of his head and jerked him into me and ran out of the residence with him. Because in my mind, there was still a perpetrator on scene. Um, sure. I didn't have enough law enforcement training at that point to look at the corpse of the child in the living room and come to the obvious realization that that child had been dead for in excess of 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, you know, Jason Voorhees was on the other side of the door in a hockey mask with a butcher knife or a machete 
ready to chop my head off. Yeah, it's an intense situation. It it was an intense situation. Um, I grabbed the child and I ran with him outside of the residence. Um, and at the point I exited the residence, the uh, family member tackled me and took the child away from me um, forcibly to try to ascertain his health and well-being. At the same time, I was just trying to duck and dodge around the family member. I mean, if I was thinking in a law enforcement mind, I would have considered that person a potential suspect, and I would have prevented him from uh, taking the child from me, but I didn't look at it that way. What I didn't include earlier is that in the brief view I got in reaching in and grabbing that child and seeing the adult that was in the room that was obviously deceased, that adult had been in the very advanced stages of pregnancy during the time that she died, and she had post-mortem delivered a fetus that was dangling from an umbilical cord. Uh, she was reclined on a piece of furniture, and, you know, that didn't really have a uh, an opportunity to register with me. Like I said, we went back outside. The police were arriving. And during the course of all this, we began to receive other 911 calls. And uh, since I had all the resources of the department tied up at that time, at this point, I had basically myself and my partner were the only people capable of responding because the other crew members were distraught and, uh, you know, visibly weeping, which I certainly don't blame them. At the time, I did not have children. Um, I can only imagine my response nowadays, you know, um, being able to put myself in, in their shoes, but I did. Um, so I was tasked with leaving the scene and responding to a call. Just prior to us getting that call, the police had chosen to try to conduct an interview with the child in the back of my unit, and the child reeked of decomp so bad that my entire unit was contaminated with the smell of decomposition. I remember as we were responding to that call and uh, I had a pretty new EMT and so I was giving them instruction about where to go and where to turn and how to drive and and so on and so forth. I was in the back with TNT cleaner spraying down the inside of my unit trying to remove the smell of decomp in the anticipation of taking on a patient. Um, so during that response, you know, I, I did my best to clean the back of the ambulance and, uh, destroy that smell, which had some limited effects. Um, we got to the scene and the patient refused our transport, um, which they, they actually needed. We tried to talk them into, but it, as I recall, that patient was, uh, extremely intoxicated and had fractured their femur on scene at a call due to a fall and was screaming and cursing at us, which just kind of added to the pandemonium of the day. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, instead of, uh, I mean, we, we did try to, to talk her into transporting, but uh, we didn't put our best effort into it because I knew I had other fires to put out. Uh, so we got a refusal signed and a witness signed from family, and I think they were loading that individual up in a car to take her 
to a uh, urgent care. I left, went back to the scene. Of course, I couldn't get my mind off what had happened. Um, the state of my other crew members when I arrived there had degraded. You know, one of them was sobbing uncontrollably inside their unit. Uh, the other one was walking around outside talking to a, a loved one on the phone, sobbing. I made the decision to immediately remove them from duty and send them home. Um, and at the time, didn't have replacements for them. And then uh, we remained on scene uh, because the area that we worked in, as is typical in rural areas, uh, you know, uh, some forensic investigators had responded. The coroner had responded. But it's typical in very rural areas. The coroner is not actually medical staff. They are an elected official. And they sometimes don't have any background in EMS or law enforcement, or there there is literally no requirement for a coroner in many rural areas. That's um, insane. They could literally be a used car salesman, um, and then they're mandated to attend a brief state-mandated training course in death investigation. But um, so that was the situation in my area. Um, the coroner did not have transport capability, so EMS was tasked with body removal in in all cases in this jurisdiction. So after we were probably on scene for several hours, leaving intermittently to run calls. Um, during that time, uh, it was summertime and it was very hot. And as I mentioned earlier, the power to the the residents at the crime scene had been disconnected, so there was no air conditioning. Um, the crime scene investigators had open windows to obtain ventilation because uh, it was extremely hot. Neighborhood dogs had come in mass, attracted by the smell of the decomp. There were buzzards circling uh, over the residence, and um, eventually, after some period of time, forensic investigators released the scene and requested that we come in and retrieve the bodies. We were provided level A suits by um, the, the fire department staff in the area was volunteer only. So we were given level A suits and SCBAs by fire department staff. And we went in um, and one by one started to remove bodies from the residence. Uh, we removed the child in the living room first and then left and transported that child a short distance to the funeral home. So, you know, the downside of that was we were now inside a very well-lit area where the injuries that the child had suffered were way more visible. I remember, you know, I'm not a person that's uh, very comfortable with insects, so the insects that were visible were particularly disturbing to me and hard to get out of my head. We responded back to the scene to then transport the mother. And then during the course, we didn't have radio comms inside our level A suits. And one of the things that stands out, it's a small detail, but it stands out so vividly in my mind is that because the forensic investigators had opened windows to achieve some ventilation, 
inside that residence and it was very warm. When we went in to retrieve the mother's body from the scene, there was a million flies inside the room and the buzzing of flies was so loud that it was all I could hear inside my level A suit and they were hitting the mask inside my suit just oh you know that's all I could see was thousands of flies hitting my face inside this mask and the just the roaring drone of their wings buzzing uh, to the point where we couldn't communicate with each other um, and we were placing her in a biocontainment bag and during the course of placing her in the bag the fetus was separated from her and became lodged in between her and a piece of furniture. And um, she was a very large woman, um, so the move was not easy. The decomp accelerated that. So once we got her outside, I said to the other people, and I I was kind of being a, a weenie now, I said, did somebody get the baby? And everybody said, and I, I don't know that they saw it. I knew that I had seen it, but everybody else was saying, what baby? I didn't see a baby. And I said, you you guys didn't see the, the baby hanging from the cord in between her legs? No, no, we probably got it. And I just knew that that baby was still in there. So I went back in alone, which made it worse in my mind. You know, obviously the boogeyman is gone. Nobody's there to get me. But the the psychological weight that was on my mind uh, was immense. Um, But I I didn't have to go in there and look for that baby. I knew exactly where that baby was. It was pinned in between where she had been laying in a piece of furniture. And so I I went in there uh, with another, uh, just a red bag off the truck a bio bag not an actual body bag like she or the other child had gone into and um place that fetus in a trash bag granted it was a red bag but in my mind it was a trash bag it is it is how we see it you know and uh and i hauled it outside and we left with it and then that was you know, that was the end of that call. And then other calls started coming in. And I, I remember, you know, I had myself convinced that I was fine that day to continue responding to calls. And, uh, you know, EMS is a small community. Other people in the area, um, as I carried other patients to the hospital, they had heard, you know, what we had responded to. And I had people coming up to me that were, you know, had more time in service than me and and I'm sure they could tell that I was not okay and they were doing their best they were coming up to me and getting me by the shirt and they were saying brother are you okay and I just look at them like they were crazy and I say of course I'm okay but I I really wasn't yeah I I was mentally I mentally checked out um and still trying to process what I had seen and what I had heard and what I had smelled and, and all the different psychological stress and physical stress of, of what I'd been through that day. Um, but I, you know, of course I didn't take myself out of service. I didn't call anybody and say, I can't continue. 
because that just wasn't an option. Um, so I continued to do my job. Now I, I will say, you know, just in the course of being forthcoming, I was not okay. I was not at my, you know, I wasn't a great paramedic at that stage of my career. I definitely wasn't a great supervisor. I definitely wasn't a great trainer or mentor. So I, on my best day, I was probably not the ideal scenario to respond to your emergency. But in my mind, I was. Uh, in my mind, I was assured that I was just fine. There was nothing wrong with me. And this was just a normal day at work. And, and that's how I got through the rest of the shift. I mean, it sounds like you had your team in mind. Maybe if, even if you didn't have yourself in mind, you had your team in mind because you were able to recognize that they were to a point where they were non-functioning and needed to go home. I did. I, I definitely cared about the people that I worked with. I, I wish I'd have had some of the insight and, you know, wisdom that 25 years of screwing up stuff brings you. But I, I didn't have any of that that day. You know, I had a very limited amount of tools to pull from my tool belt. And uh, I'm a perfectionist that never gets perfection. So I can look back on that call and honestly say I did a piss poor job, but also honestly say I did the best that I was capable of doing that day. Yeah, I would agree. From this angle, I, I don't think that there's anything else that you could have done. I think that you did all of the right things that you could have done at that time. And, you know, I can hear in your voice that it's still one of the ones that that does bother you. What have you done for yourself to kind of ease that that hurt oh that's an excellent question but um you know in the immediacy after the call um of course there was nothing there to do there was absolutely nothing uh there was no leadership to come in and say hey you need a day off you need to go talk to somebody you don't look okay and you don't need to be here and to you know anybody in leadership out there that's listening to this you know you you have to gauge your staff based on what their experience and and you have to know them you can't be sitting in an office somewhere in administration 300 miles away and have a crew go through this and expect to talk to them on the phone and come to an honest determinants of what their ability to continue on is. It's possible that you get a guy or girl with a lot of experience that can soldier on through that. But if you don't really know them, if you don't know what their baseline is, if you've never talked to them, if you only talked to them in passing, you're not the right person to make that decision about whether or not they're okay to continue. And you have to recognize that people that gravitate toward our profession, we will continue to step into the line of fire emotionally, physically, however, you know, whatever you, you want to translate that term to, we will continue to do it to our detriment, even when we shouldn't, unless someone else steps in and says, I don't care what you say, you got the next two days off. You're going to go home you're going to spend some time with your family. You're going to go cut your grass, do whatever you do that brings you peace. And you're going to go see somebody because if, if you don't know what their baseline is, they will con you 
honestly or dishonestly. And a lot of times it'll be honestly. They'll honestly believe in their hearts. They're okay to continue. But they are not. They are not. And, and, um, and I would say that people that know them well can only make a bystander judgment of what their capabilities are based on knowing that person over the course of years. Really, they require some kind of professional assessment. And they really need to get that off their chest. Because if they don't, they're going to continue to soldier up and, and suck it up buttercup, like you said earlier. And, and they're going to say the mission is greater than me. And, uh, and, and that's a really noble mantra to have. Um, and sometimes you can let the mission be greater than you. And then sometimes when you're trying to live up to that mantra, and you're not up to your best, it's kind of like in the uh, flight world where we call crew rest. You know, it's it's not that we're saying we're not good providers, but we're just saying, look, we've been up too long. We cannot continue to function at a high level in order to do the best that we do because we are physically exhausted. But in this case, it's a mental exhaustion. And, and there's, you know, back during this day, there was not, the opportunity to call crew rest to say I'm mentally exhausted I cannot come in and work and honestly even if there had been the opportunity there was no um, and, and this, again this is not throwing a rock at EMS this is just the state of affairs back in the day there was limited amount of information even if we'd have had the opportunity I think you and I are kind of at the same level of vintage in EMS we just flat out wouldn't have taken it because there was no education. There wasn't, no. There was nobody that gave you a course that said, when you go through a really traumatic incident, these this is the normal physiologic response. This is the normal things that you can expect to encounter in the weeks, the days and weeks after this type of event. You will not sleep. You will have nightmares. You will you know, you will experience a whole gamut of negative repercussions that I don't care how tough you are, you cannot prepare yourself for and you really can't insulate yourself from. If they get you, they just get you. And so you have to have people coming to you asking you, are you experiencing nightmares? Are you experiencing sleeplessness? You know, and if you don't have that, you're going to suck it up, buttercup. You're going to show up for work two days later. And you say, I'm good to go. I'm ready to run this shift. I'm ready to run my calls. Line them up. Let's go. That one hits hard. It's true. Um, but would you change it? I wouldn't change it only because I've come through on the other side okay. And I'm, and I'm able to use these experiences to become a better provider but i would say that's a happy accident um you know the the things that i wrestled with in the years behind this it's a miracle that i came out of it in a good way a lot of luck a lot of grace and a lot of it just happy coincidence but you know the positions that i got myself in after that i could have easily wound up in a bad place I could have easily wound up dead. 
I could have easily wound up incarcerated. I could have easily wound up without a license to provide care to other people. I could have easily wound up without, you know, a good job to provide opportunities to my kids and have a good life. It's just sheer circumstance and luck. And I'm grateful and I intend on making the most of it. And uh, that's part of why I'm on this call with you today is uh, I I know that the culture that we work in now is different. Um, I've been on a really what should have been a bad call in the past couple years. But, you know, I feel like I'm pretty immune to these kind of calls now after 25 years of, of suffering through them. Like, uh, my, my heart is not hard, but I, I still very much have a, a need to take care of other people and feel a call to action and feel proud of the job that EMS provides other people to, to step into that line and, and be the person that another person needs on their worst day. I can run a call now where a parent backs over their child and crushes their head with a car and see that trauma is not just the physical trauma to the child, but the emotional trauma to the family and, and know that I did my best and that the outcome, which is inevitably going to be that that child dies was unavoidable. And I can look for the good in that call. And that sounds really macabre that you can find good in a call like that. But the good in that call is you get reps working and doing skills on a patient that's not viable, that you have no expectation to fix or to save or to improve. And those skills are going to be extremely necessary a child or another patient who is viable and it's kind of like a it's almost like a skills lab you know if you pick up a child who's been accidentally shot in the head with a firearm at home and they have brain matter coming out of their ears like that's a horrible call those are gonna happen and when you get to run one of those you know the way i look at it i'm very glass half full provider I don't enjoy running those calls. I don't want those calls. But when I get them, you know, the way I console my partner and the other providers that I'm working with is, look, this this was going to happen. No matter what we did, we couldn't prevent this. It sucks that we just saw a five-year-old pass on out of this life. And it sucks that his nine-year-old brother accidentally shot him in the head. And now he's going to deal with that. And it sucks that the parents are dealing with this unimaginable trauma. But if you, you can either dwell on that part of it or you can find the good in it. And the good in it is that I got to do skills in a, what I would consider now is a stress-free environment. I mean, there is stress, but there is no expectation for me to improve that situation. Absolutely none. The outcome is determined. No different than it is than if I go to, you know, a cadaver lab. Nobody expects me to go to a cadaver lab and place a surgical crike in a patient and that patient stood up off the table. That outcome is already determined. In the same way it is when I run 
this horrible call. I get to practice skills in a, what I consider to be a stress-free environment. And I know that in the perfection of those skills, that I will have the opportunity down the road to make a difference in a viable life. I will perform better somewhere down the road because of this experience. That's definitely a unique perspective and eye-opening. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody else describe it like that. I mean, but the way you say it makes sense. Because how often do we get to practice on, you know, anything other than a plastic dummy or a plastic arm or anything not plastic? But it's not the same, is it? No, it's not. And it it's... It is tough to think about, but it's something we do have to think about. And you're just turning that terrible, awful situation and, and trying to make it better, you know, for yourself and for your crew members, which is in turn a good thing. You're making the most out of something that not a lot of people can. I'm very much a believer that that uh, the outcomes of our careers are perspective driven. So it is very easy to settle into the sorrow of what we do every day. And if you want, if you choose to grasp on to the sorrow of what we do every day, you will find yourself a miserable person. You will find yourself unhappy. Which I think a lot of, a lot of people in our careers do. I do. And I, I don't fault them. I understand. Cause I've been there. Like I've, I've been a person grasping at sorrow and holding on to it and, and, finding it in you know song lyrics or something that reminds me or waking up after a nightmare but you have to really be on the stick to maintain a positive mental outlook and to decide that you know for all those bad calls I've run they're horrible and and obviously you know I got a little choked up talking about the call we talked about so a part of it I still carry with me, but I, I equate it to a seesaw. That sits on one end of the seesaw. What sits on the other end of the seesaw is all the calls I've ever run, and, and you can relate to this, I'm sure, Sam. How many times have you run a call over the years, and you might have even forgotten about the call, and then weeks, months, maybe even a year later, somebody shows up at your station or your base, and they say, do you remember me? Because I remember you. You remember that call where you picked up that car wreck and they start telling you about it? And for the first 10 minutes of them talking, you have no idea what they're talking. And then they say, you know, I had on that red pair of weird shoes. And then a light goes off in your head and you're like, those shoes. I remember those shoes. And then they say, you did this, this, and this for me. And then you took me here and, and they're telling you things that you did that you really don't even remember, but they're standing there in front of you and they say, I'm here today because of what you did for me. And sometimes they're not always correct. Sometimes it's just their perception. Sometimes the things that they equate to your actions are, I won't say they're not accurate, but they've over romanticized them based on their lack of understanding about emergency medical care. Sure, about what we when do. When they remind you, it, it, it grabs you, and it reminds you of how you felt in the moment and how 
it reminds you of how you really cared during that incident about what happened to them. Now, you may have forgotten it 25 minutes after you dropped them off at the trauma center and you went back in service, but during that brief period of time, you were 100% invested in what you were doing. You were 100% sold on their outcome. And then at the end of it, you cut loose of it and you got ready for the next call, which is why you don't remember any of the incident up until they call your attention to the red shoes or whatever it was. Some random little thing, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and when they're there and they've sought you out and they're telling you I'm okay today and then you get to go back for a brief period of time and remember that call, to me, that that's like the greatest reward you'll ever get. One that doesn't come very often, unfortunately, but it is true. It doesn't, but, you know, looking back on your career, would you agree that you might get one of those a year? Yeah, probably about one a year. And that one a year, the weight that it, places on the other side of that seesaw for me is a thousand times what those other calls weigh on the seesaw. Like it tips the scales for me. That's awesome. And so I, I think you have to choose for it to do that. And you, you have to uh, grab your successes and you have to learn from these failures and you have to just learn from these bad outcomes that where you didn't necessarily fail, the outcome was already predetermined. But at the end of the day, you know, I choose to have the bad outcomes are riding high in there because the weight of those successes far outweigh that. You know, if you get one of those a year times 30 years at the end of your career, that's 30 lives. It's a huge number. And, and this is not to throw a rock at my law enforcement or my firefighter colleagues at all because I love them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've been a police officer but you go find a police officer that saved 30 lives at the end of his career. No, it's true. And again, I don't say that to disparage them. I say that to grab on to every good feeling I can about this so that I can stay invested in it. If I can retire after 30 years and have 30 faces in my mind, what a huge number that is. That is a huge number. And James, we're uh, getting ready to finish up here. I just want to say thank you so much for contacting me and reaching out and ultimately sharing your stories um, and even the hard conversations with me. Well, I, I really appreciate you providing the form to do it. It's been a pleasure talking to you offline and online. Um, it's been therapeutic for me, and I, I hope that it has been of some value to your audience. I, I most definitely think it will, and I may be calling you back for season two. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm gay. All right, James, well, I appreciate it, man. I hope you have a good night. Keep in contact and uh, stay safe. I know I don't know you well, but I want to say this in closing. Like, I've appreciated my talk with you, and I love you, sister. Yeah, brother, I love you too. You stay out of trouble, man. You can call me anytime. All right, peace out. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. 
If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.